Well, our sermon text this morning is a short one. It's Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. And I'll invite you, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to that and give ear to the reading of God's Word, I'll ask if you're able to do so to stand for the reading of God's Holy Word today. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. Give ear to the reading of God's Word. Mark writes, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. The sense of the reading of God's word, you may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us even today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it points us first and foremost to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Savior and King. Thank you for the way that it points us over and over again in so many ways to everything about him, but mostly to his sufferings and death and resurrection in our place for our salvation And we pray that you would, by your spirit, work in us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word that we might know him and love him and worship him even more. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been with us for a good bit of time in the Gospel of Mark, especially these last three chapters, uh, you you may or may not know that this is now the third time in the span of just three chapters that Jesus clearly teaches explicitly teaches his disciples about his upcoming sufferings, death, and even his resurrection. Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 32 is the first time. It's right after, you know, Peter. Remember Peter gives that confession of Christ. Peter says, you know, who, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, you are the Christ. This, you know, he hits the nail right on the head. And what's the very next thing Jesus does? tells them what kind of Christ he came to be, that he's going to die and rise from the grave. And it says there in verse 32 that he told them this, the word is plainly. He didn't speak in parables. He didn't tell them, you know, kind of around the bend and beat around the bush about it. He told them exactly what was going to happen. And it was kind of the subject on their journey he taught them about. In Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, might even be on the opposite page, depending on how your Bible is uh, laid out. He does it once again. He tells them about his sufferings, his death, and his resurrection. Well, here in in Mark 10, for a third time in three chapters, he tells them plainly about his sufferings. He predicts and prophesies what was to come upon him at Jerusalem. Now, if you might know from the text, twice there, where were they going? Jerusalem, the very first verse there, 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. They, They... Surely the disciples knew where they were headed. They had been there before. It was a familiar road, maybe familiar terrain. And he tells them, as they're going there, here's what's going to happen to me when we we get there. Now you and I might be tempted, maybe if you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, if you've been following along these last few weeks and months, you might be tempted to think of this kind of repetition as being uh, redundant, maybe unnecessary. You know, maybe... Uh, you know, as, as a pastor, 
in some ways, you, know, you could kind of almost forgive a pastor for looking at this text and saying, what do I do? Do I just pull out the sermon I did last time in chapter 9 or chapter 8? Is it the same, you know, same thing, third verse, same as the first? What, what are you supposed to, to do? And you, know, you, might, you might be tempted to think that, uh, but we'd be wrong. You can see from the disciples' different responses after each time he tells them about his death and resurrection just how slow they really were to understand and grasp what he was telling them. They were really slow to understand the reality of what was to come, even though he was spelling it out for them in plain, almost said plain English, whatever, you know, plain language to them. The first instance in Mark chapter 8, as we said, you know, Peter gave that confession of Jesus as the, as the Christ and then told them, told them what was going to happen to him, that he was going to be betrayed and killed and rise from the dead. And what's, what was Peter's response, if you remember, in chapter 8? Peter took him aside, verse 32 of chapter 8. Took Jesus aside. Didn't, he was nice. He didn't do it publicly. He didn't want to embarrass the King of Kings and Lord of Glory, right, by rebuking him. But it says he began to rebuke him. You know, not so, Lord. You know, this, no way this is going to happen to you, not on my watch. You know, right? Kind of thing. He couldn't conceive of a suffering and dead Messiah even if that was only going to be for three days. He couldn't even begin to come. He, he couldn't imagine that being the case in the second time in Mark chapter 9. What do you, have, what do you see the, the disciples doing right afterward? Jesus tells them in plain language his sufferings, his death, his resurrection. And the very next thing you find is them arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Mark 9 verse 34. Talk about kind of missing, missing the point. While Jesus was talking about his own impending sufferings and death, their minds were all wrapped up in daydreams of their own glory. Which of us is the greatest? The greatest is sitting there talking to you about himself dying and why you're following him. Now in chapter 10, after Jesus tells the disciples of his rejection, we're going to see this next time, talks about his, re his rejection, his condemnation, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection, once again, we find at least two of the disciples, James and John, what were they doing? They weren't just daydreaming about glory outside of what they thought was Christ's earshot. They actually come to Jesus himself. And what do they do? They start lobbying for positions of glory and prominence in his coming kingdom. It says there that the, in verse 37 of chapter 10, they asked Jesus, quote, grant to us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Now, you almost can't help but think about when you hear one to your right and one to your left of the cross. And Jesus kind of tells them, you don't know what you're asking. You really don't know what you're asking uh, when you ask me, me that. I think if we're honest with ourselves, are we really any less slow to understand the centrality of the cross of Christ for our faith and for our life? Are we any less prone to daydream of glory in this present life, of the easy life, of the good life, of, as if following Christ somehow isn't going to lead us, in some ways at least, to persecution and suffering and affliction before sharing in his glory? You and I will, if you're in Christ, you will one day share in his glory. We could spend all day just talking about that, and we wouldn't even scratch the surface of it. But we share in his glory after we share in his, as Paul says in Romans, in his sufferings too. You and I, just like the twelve, 
I think, need constant reminders of the cross and resurrection of Christ. I think that's why it's in Mark's gospel so many times. You know, Mark could have just saved the whole thing to the end, till the end. He could have sprung it on us and just told us about, about it when, as it happened. But Jesus didn't do that, and Mark doesn't do that either. Jesus taught it to them again and again and again. And so we must need, just like the twelve, no less than them, to be reminded constantly and regularly of the cross and resurrection of Christ. When we have the Lord's Supper every first Sunday of the month, many churches do it every week. That may be something we, we look at doing in, in the future, but what is it a constant reminder of? Among other things, Christ's death for sinners, Christ's death for us, his body and blood, and even of his resurrection, because we are to celebrate the, you know, proclaim the Lord's death by the Lord's Supper. How long? Until he comes, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There's a hymn, we'll probably sing it next Sunday, not this Sunday, that's, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. You know, this is one of those texts, some, some Sundays, I'll peel the curtain back a little bit, when we pick hymns, you know, some texts are harder to find hymns and songs for than others. This kind of a text, you could almost close your eyes and flip the pages open in the hymnal, and you'll find any number of hymns about Christ's death and resurrection and God's, God's grace. Well, that, that hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, it says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, it says our richest gains we count but loss, but poor contempt on all of our pride. It's, what, what does that? The cross. Keeping the cross at the front and foreground of our, of our thinking. It's only the message of Christ's cross repeated often in our hearing, in our reading, in our meditations that will cure us of our foolish pride and self-sufficiency and self-glory and keep us from boasting or glorying in anything except the cross of Christ and our Savior crucified and risen from the dead. Well, it's a short text, but I'd like us to look at a couple things at least. The first thing I think we need to look at, and it might not jump off the page at you there in, in Mark 10, but it's Christ's willingness and determination to save sinners. That's, that's I think, the first thing that we should notice in our, in our text. Look at verse 32 here uh, again it says and and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and taking the 12 again he began to tell them what was to happen to him so here we go again but notice he says they were amazed and the other word for that would be astonished uh, at what they were seeing and it says that those following along behind him were what Afraid. This, there was something different about this road trip. There was something, something very different about this, this journey to Jerusalem. Maybe they didn't quite understand why they were afraid and amazed, but something about it, there was something kind of uh, grave about this, about this trip, something very serious about, about this trip, something very different about it. And Mark, when Mark says there, Jesus was walking ahead of them, it's, you, know, you get the picture, it's almost like they couldn't keep up. He, you know, they, they traveled all kinds of places in the Gospel of Mark, all over the place, and preached the Gospel. Jesus did many miracles and healings and casting out demons and, and, and preaching uh, the Gospel. But all of a sudden, it's like he's in a hurry. He's, he's got a place to go and a thing to do, and they're having trouble keeping up. And You almost can't help but think that that's, there's something about that that made them amazed that made them 
astonished and afraid. And I think if you think about this passage a little bit more, you know, maybe the most amazing thing about this little passage, these three verses, is not so much as amazing as Christ's prediction of his sufferings and resurrection uh, is, and we're going to look at that shortly. But as amazing as that is, probably the most amazing thing in our passage is that one little phrase in verse 32, Jesus was walking ahead of them. Why should that shock us? Why should that make us amazed and even a little bit, in some ways, fearful? Because Jesus, when you look at the next two verses, he knew exactly what was going to happen to him when he got there. And he wasn't lagging back. He wasn't dragging his feet. He was walking out ahead of them. And the only thing he did stop to do was to explain to them what was going to happen when they got there. He didn't lag or drag his feet. Reminds me of, of that passage in Genesis chapter 22 when you have, you know, that God tells Abraham, I, I won't quote it, but I'll paraphrase it. God tells Abraham, you know, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, take him up on a mountain I'm going to show you and sacrifice him to me. You know, kill, kill the son of, your, of the promise that I gave you, that you waited 25 years for. And there's a verse there in that chapter that I always am shocked at when I read it. It says, early in the morning, Abraham got up and went. If there was ever a day I would have slept in as late as I could, it would have been that day. Not Abraham. Abraham got up early and got to it. And he was going to do it if the angel hadn't grabbed, you know, stopped his hand from doing what God had told him to do. Even all of that was a picture of Christ to come, wasn't it? That's why God didn't let him sacrifice Isaac. Isaac was a type of the one to come, as was that ram caught in a, in a thicket. Now think about that. Jesus was walking out in front of the rest of them on his way to Jerusalem, knowing everything that was going to happen to him there. Think about that, and then read again verse 32 to 34. Mark says that Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, as if they didn't know where they were going, right? And the Son of Man, that's the title he keeps using of himself, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. You know, our Savior did not shrink back or hesitate from doing the will of his Father in accomplishing your salvation and mine. In fact, the closer he got to Jerusalem, it seemed like the more of a hurry he got to get there. The closer they got, the more of a hurry he seemed to be in. Think about that and think about the great steadfastness with which your Savior went to the cross for your salvation. He was determined to do his Father's will. He was determined to accomplish your salvation from sin. As the writer of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse 2, he says, For the joy that was set before him, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus did what? Endured the cross despising the shame. He counted the joy of greater value than the shame and even the pain of death on a cross. Isaiah 50, we read that this morning. Isaiah 50 verse 7 speaks of Christ doing what? Setting his face like flint. Setting his face like, like stone, immovable. He wouldn't be moved or deterred from where he was going to the cross. And that's what you see here in Mark chapter 10. Jesus, Mark doesn't use the phrase, but he shows you what it means. 
He's showing us in verse 32 especially, Jesus setting his face like flint to go to the cross. That's why Jesus is walking ahead of them. That's probably why they were so amazed and even afraid when they watched it, when they watched what he was doing. You and I should never lose sight of the willingness of the Lord of glory to lay down his life for his sheep. As Mark writes later on in the same chapter, in verse 45, Mark 10:45, he says, For even the Son of Man, there's his title again, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to do what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you are here this morning, whether you be a long-time member, first-time visitor, whatever it may be, if you're still outside of Christ and have not yet come to him for salvation from sin, what, what possibly holds you back? What holds you back? Do you somehow doubt his willingness to save you from your sins? Do you think that he would do all that he did in setting his face like flint to go to the cross and die and give his life as a ransom for sinners and then somehow he would turn you away because you're a great sinner. He came to seek and save sinners, to give his life as a ransom for sinners, for many. He won't turn you away just because you are the sinner he came to die for to begin with. John 6:37. Jesus there says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And then what does he say? And whoever comes to me I will never cast out, or I will by no means cast out. He didn't die for sins, for sinners, only to turn them away when they come to him by faith. So the scripture would say, come, come to him, come to Christ if you have not done so already. Come to him and live. He has promised not to cast you out or turn you away. The one who did not turn his, his way from the cross will by no means turn you away if you come to him. Well, the next thing I'd like us to look at is in verses 33 and 34, but it does start in verse 32. It's the predictions of Christ's suffering and resurrection, his own prophecy, really, of his own coming sufferings and resurrection. In verse 32, Mark says that Jesus, quote, began to tell them what was to happen to him. He started to tell them again what was going to happen to them when they got to him, when they got to Jerusalem. Now, the word for happen there. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a, a, a different word. It's not, it's not just the kind of word that we use or that the, the scripture, the writers of the New Testament used for something just happening. It's not, it's not, you know, there's a certain word that's used over and over again in these narratives that just means, and it's often translated, such and such came to pass. It just so happened to happen kind of thing. This one actually means, it has the idea of things falling into place or coming together like pieces of a puzzle kind of fitting together and falling into, into line. So this, this is not just something that came to pass or was going to come to pass. This is something showing, I think, Mark's use of that word there and Jesus' use of that word, of things falling into place. The sufferings and glory of Jesus Christ, his cross and his resurrection, were the outworking of the sovereign plan and decree of God from all eternity. That's just the fact that he prophesize it in the next two verses should be enough to tell us that but I think even the word Jesus uses for what was soon to happen or to come together to him I think tells us that Peter says the same kind of thing in Acts chapter 2 in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem no, no less he says this Acts 2 22 to 24 men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God 
with works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, they knew who he was talking about, this Jesus, here it is, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Wrap your mind around that for a minute. He basically tells them, you all are guilty of murdering the Son of God, Jesus Christ, your Messiah. And, even, and you're not, he doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it. You know, it was God's plan, so it's not your fault. It's not what he says at all. But he says that he was delivered up, same phrase we find in our text, delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus' death was no accident. His resurrection was no happenstance of history or circumstance. It was God's plan for salvation, the salvation of his people from all eternity. It was the plan of God. Now look at verses 33 to 34 where Jesus kind of gives the summary of his prophecy and prediction of his suffering and death and resurrection. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they, the Gentiles, will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now this, this third prediction of Christ's sufferings and resurrection, if you read the other, all three of them, chapter 8, chapter 9, and this one, this is by far the most detailed of the three. It, it's such a short passage, we kind of, Maybe lose sight of that and don't notice it. It doesn't jump off the page. But it's the most detailed so far of the three. In fact, it's so detailed, it's so precise in its fulfillment that many liberal, what I would say, unbelieving scholars have actually said, there's no way Jesus said that. What they say is, there's no way that happened. Mark must have you know, added that after the fact. You know, although they'd have to be admitting Jesus rose from the dead to say that, right? But they, they think it's so precise in its fulfillment, it must have been written after the fact. The same things are often said in the, in the book of Isaiah by liberal scholars. They say, well, these, these, these predictions are too precise. They're, they're kind of complementing God's word in a, in a left-handed fashion. They're saying, there's no way, because it, it's too accurate. Whereas those with the eyes of faith just say, yeah, see, I told you so. He, he told us so. That's, that's what's happening here. Well, in verse 33, Jesus foretells of his rejection by his own people. In a sense, you could divide this passage up. Verse 33, his rejection by the Jews. And verse 34, his, his death at the hands of, of the Gentiles. It says he's going to be delivered over to the chief priests, verse 33, and scribes. Now, that, that doesn't sound like much to us, but the chief priests and the scribes that's referring to the Sanhedrin. That's the, the supreme court, so to speak, of the Jews of, of their day. It didn't get much higher than that. It was the, the court. And that Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, uh, what was happening to Jesus there? He was put on trial, literally put on trial before them. And what, is, what does Jesus say they were going to do? Condemn him to death. He was put on trial and convicted wrongly of a capital crime of a of a capital a death sentence crime he wasn't just rejected by his people as if that wouldn't be bad enough he was certainly rejected by them 
He was condemned by them as if he were a, a murderer, as if he were a criminal worthy of nothing but execution. And it's kind of difficult for you and I in our day and, and age and, and, and culture that we live in. It's difficult for you and I, I think, to imagine the sheer horror of the idea of the Messiah, the King of the Jews, being delivered over. Mark uses that phrase, Jesus does, twice. Delivered over, not just delivered over to, to death, as bad as that is, but delivered over to the Gentiles. We don't think of Jew and Gentile in our day and with, with good reason. But in their day, there, there wasn't a bigger dividing line on earth in their minds than Jew and Gentile. There was Jew, if you were Jewish, there were Jews and there were everybody else. And they were handing, in a sense, Jesus, their, their Messiah, their king, the one they'd waited all these years for. They delivered him over to death at the hands of, in a sense, unclean Gentiles and, and pagans. But it's also somehow fitting that since the Lord of glory came to redeem both Jews and Gentiles, that both Jews and Gentiles played a part in his sufferings and his death. Everybody got to play a part in that. Now, verse 34, um, if we take the time to think about it, it's kind of hard to read as short as it is. If you give it much thought, it's kind of brutal. It's kind of abrupt in its detail. It's like one thing after another thing after another thing, Jesus said, is going to be done to him and inflicted upon him the Lord of glory, culminating in his death at the hands of wicked men. Jesus says, the Son of Man there uh, he says of himself that the Gentiles will what? Will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Now, he doesn't mention the cross by name, does he? He doesn't mention crucifixion, but in a sense, he implies it the entire way. If he's rejected by his own people, condemned to death by his own people, they weren't allowed to do capital punishment on their own. They weren't, they weren't their own rulers at the time. The Romans were. So to hand him over to death, to a death sentence at the hands of the Romans, what death was that going to be? It was going to be the crucifixion. It was going to be the cross. So Jesus, and it's probably not something that would have been lost on the people listening to him, on the twelve. When they heard delivered over to the Gentiles to be put to death, he didn't have to spell it out for them. They, they, all, they probably knew exactly what he was saying. Now Jesus tells the disciples that the Gentiles would mock him and spit on him. Now we're going to see when we get to Mark chapter 15, that's exactly what happens. Mark 15, verses 16 to 20, it says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head, with a reed, and here it is, spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, same word, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. The same thing is prophesied back in Psalm 22, really the psalm of the cross written by David. David writes and prophesies of this one. He says in Psalm 22, 6 through 8, he puts the words of Christ in his own mouth, doesn't he? But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's something that practically word for word was said of him when he was hanging on the cross. 
If you trust in the Lord, let the Lord save him. They didn't know what they were saying. They didn't know what they were saying of him. Even on the cross, while he was being crucified and killed, he was subjected to mocking and scorn. Mark 15 again, verses 29 to 32, it says, And those who passed by, remember, this was a public execution. The cross wasn't hidden in some back room somewhere. It was out in the public view. All those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads at him, just like Psalm 22 says, and saying, Aha, you would who, destroy, who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Of course, if he saved himself and came down from the cross, he would save no one but himself. And it says also there, so also the chief priests with the scribes, the ones who had handed him over to death, right, mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Notice the repetition of that word over and over again. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When, when Psalm 22, when David says, all who see me mock me, Mark spells it right out. Even the people hanging next to him on the crosses next to him, at least for a time, were mocking him and reviling him. Jesus says that the, to the disciples, the Gentiles were going to, quote, flog him. That also is foretold in Isaiah 50, verse 6. We read that this morning where Isaiah says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Like giving your back to those who strike, that's a picture of flogging. It's a picture of being whipped. That's what flogging involved. It was a very peculiar, very particular type of, of beating or striking where you would be tied to a post or something to, to make your back exposed. And there was a whip that they would use that had pieces of sometimes bone and glass and sharp hard objects in it that would tear your skin apart. It would sometimes even break bones. Sometimes it even caused death. It got you to the point of death before you even were on the cross. That's how bad the flogging was. And finally, Jesus simply says that they would, verse 34, finally they would kill him. Think about it. Killing Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah and son of David, killing the Lord of glory should be difficult for us to fathom that the Lord of glory should be a man of sorrows should be something that is incomprehensible to our finite minds it's easy to say the words I can put the words in the page I can say the words but it, it boggles the mind to think remember who it is that's being crucified the Lord of glory the son of God incarnate is the one that was being crucified and put to death by wicked men we're going to sing as our final hymn after the sermon this morning, a song, a hymn called Man of Sorrows by Philip Bliss. And he puts the whole situation, I think, uh, well in, in the first three verses of that hymn that we're going to sing. There he writes, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. For all the things you could call Jesus, that one makes no sense. Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim Hallelujah, what a Savior. And then he says, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And then, I won't sing it, but uh, Guilty, vile, and helpless we, Spotless Lamb of God was he. 
We're the guilty ones, not him. And then he says, full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. Jesus, the son of God, being called the title of man of sorrows. It, it, we can't, it boggles our mind. We can't even begin to comprehend it. But it, I think this does help to explain, at least a little bit maybe, not getting them off the hook. Why were the disciples so slow to understand? Why were they still talking about glory over and over again when Jesus was talking about the cross and resurrection? They didn't get everything about him, but you can't help but think that they couldn't fathom it. When they looked at him, they didn't see... I mean, he wasn't walking around like the transfiguration all the time, but a few of them got to see that. They had a sneak peek into his glory that was to come, and in a sense, even in the glory that he had laid aside to come and be with them and die for our sins. And so they, they, they had some grasp of his glory, and they couldn't, because of that, fathom the idea that he could possibly be rejected and mocked and spit upon and beaten and killed, especially the death of a cross. Maybe that helps explain the, the need for Jesus to over and over and over again tell them ahead of time and prepare them for what was to come, telling them about his cross. Well, thankfully, the very last phrase of verse 34 speaks of the sure hope of the resurrection. He doesn't just talk about his mocking and being spit upon and being killed, but he says, after three days, he will rise. After three days he will rise. Without the resurrection of Christ, everything would be lost. We would still be, you and I would still be in our sins. But his resurrection, as Paul says, is the seal of our justification. It's the guarantee of our future resurrection if you're in Christ as well. That the Lord of glory again should bear shame and scoffing should be unthinkable to us. But he bore all of that, the Son, the son of God, the spotless, sinless Son of God, stood condemned in our place. He took the condemnation that you and I justly deserve. He took the mocking, the spitting, the beating, the death that you and I deserve. He took the wrath of God that you and I deserve in our place. And so can you say this morning, even as we're going to sing as we close the service from the hymn, can you say, as the hymn writer put it, in my place condemned he stood. Is that, is that your testimony this morning, that you know that Jesus Christ died in your place? Are you trusting in him for salvation from sin? The Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, became a man of sorrows so that sinful men like you and I who deserve nothing but sorrow might share in his glory. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't even know what to say when we read these words in your scriptures. It, 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 we don't even know how to process it how to think of it but we know uh, that you deserve all the praise and glory and honor and power and dominion forever and ever we give you praise for loving wicked sinners such as us that you would from all eternity plan to send your son to give him uh, that we might be redeemed that he might make atonement for our sins and take upon himself the condemnation and death that we deserve so that we might have all the blessings that he earned in our place in him. And we ask that you would give us grace to live more and more in a way that's fitting uh, with, with that salvation that you have worked for us in your son. And we do pray that if anybody here does not yet know you, has not trusted in Christ alone for salvation from sin, that you might even open their eyes today, grant them repentance and faith in him, and grant them life everlasting and abundant 
that can only be found in your Son, the Lord of glory, who became a man of sorrows, that we might become people with eternal joy. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.